Hello and welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton, based in WRI's Europe office over in the Netherlands. Today, the podcast is about the link between the climate and conflict. WRI is one of the founding members of the Water, Peace and Security Partnership, which is trying to unpick the role of water in igniting or exacerbating conflict using data, machine learning and much, much more. Charlie Iceland is our lead on WPS. I asked him what the problem was they were trying to solve. The basic problem is that we are seeing a lot of uh, natural resource scarcity around the world. We look at water, so we're seeing a lot of problems with respect to water scarcity, the pollution of water to the point that it, it cannot be used anymore. And in some cases, there's a problem of, of too much water. You know, we're, we're seeing increasingly severe droughts and, and flooding events that have been predicted uh, to accompany uh, climate change. At the same time, we see these resource pressures, which are a result of, of growing populations and growing economies. At the same time, we're seeing changing climactic problems. And so we are seeing more and more conflict over natural resource scarcity, including water scarcity. Can you give me an example of the type of situation you're talking about? Yeah, well, for, for example, in the inner Niger Delta in Mali, this is a, a place that maybe 40 years ago had a half million people and, and plenty of water. Now the, the population of that area has grown to about 2 million people, so it's quadrupled. The annual flood that they get, which helps them farm and uh, graze their cattle and, and their fishermen as well during the, this annual flooding event, that flood is getting smaller and smaller every year because of upstream uses of water uh, or the damming up of the river, which causes this annual flood not, not to be as big because the dams are controlling the releases of water. So just to set the geographical scene, this is on the edge of the Sahel uh, and the Niger River, one of West Africa's really big rivers, it, it goes through this area and in an otherwise fairly arid land, it uh, it creates this inner wetland, inland wetland, which leads to, you know, you've got little islands, you've got fishing communities, you've got this really, really particular uh, set of geographical conditions in an otherwise dry area. But what you're saying is that the balance can be upset and then that leads to conflict conditions. Uh, th that's correct. So, so we're seeing more people, we're, we're seeing less water during the annual flood. And as a consequence, partially as a consequence, you're, you're seeing farmers and uh, pastoralists uh, start to conduct violent acts against each other. And where does WPS, where does the, uh, the, for instance, the early warning tool, which is a key part of the, the Water, Peace and Security Initiative, where does that fit in? How does that apply to the situation? Well, the, the early warning tool is, is the first step in a multi-step process within the Water, Peace and Security Partnership. The, the early warning tool is a global tool that uh, looks at risks of conflict in, in near real time. It projects conflict over the next 12 months. And so that's kind of a first pass to look across the globe and try to identify priority areas where we might expect conflict in the coming 12 months and where we might want to dig deeper, verify whether this is the case uh, using more local tools, and perhaps uh, stage some interventions such as uh, capacity building, conducting dialogues among conflicting parties. It's the first of a multi-step process. So what it does is it, it layers on 
data from different sources, economic, social, climatic, and, and so on, meteorological, and puts it all together. And because of that, you're then able to identify the interplay of these factors. And that's where the early warning comes from. And then because you're able to, to understand what created a, a particularly tense or conflict situation, you're then able to unpick it and, and understand exactly what it is that you can do to address a situation. Is that the best way of understanding it from a layman's position? Yeah. So, so uh, traditional conflict early warning systems that, that have been developed in the past look at a country's vulnerability. So it could be economic political, social, demographic vulnerability. So we include all those variables and, and we add to it uh, water risk variables. So this is the first time that we've added an environmental variable to a conflict early warning system. We look at rainfall anomalies, anomalies in terms of crop health. We might see crops fail. In the coming months, we're going to add uh, anomalies that we see in reservoirs. So, so, for example, a reservoir might be uh, depleting very rapidly due to a very severe drought. So we'll be able to identify that. And so this enables us to see really a bird's eye view, what the problems may be associated with. And then if we want to continue to look at a, a certain hotspot, then we would use a more local tool to get more information about the political, social, economic, demographic, and natural resource factors that are spurring this conflict on. Who would use this tool? It's really directed at what we call global 4D audiences. So these are defense experts, diplomats, development experts, and, and disaster response uh, officials. So while many people on the ground may be aware of the problems, it might be that these global decision makers are not aware of these problems. It's not coming up on their radar. And they really hold the purse strings and the power to intervene in a lot of these places, you know, subject to the host government's acquiescence with an intervention. So, so it's really to kind of highlight this at a, at a global level with global actors. Obviously, people have been quite aware of uh, climatic problems contributing to conflict uh, in the past. Uh, and obviously, people have fought over things like uh, natural resources in the past. But um, how much are we, are we now being able to understand about what actually drives particular conflicts because of the level of, the level of data that's being produced at the minute, uh, both in the, the, the kind of human social sphere and the economic sphere, as well as the natural sphere? This, the WPS initiative is really riding on the, on the crest of this, uh, of this massive explosion of, of being able to use data to understand human activity better? Well, it's interesting. So, so there's been a lot of qualitative analysis that has established uh, uh, linkages between environmental uh, or, or resource depletion and conflict, as well as resource depletion and mass migration out of an affected area. Uh, what we haven't had to date is a, a quantitative verification of these linkages. It's very complex, as you might imagine, to, to figure out uh, on a, I guess, systematic basis what is causing conflict, because uh, most conflicts are the result of a lot of different variables, and each conflict is unique. We haven't done any more to clarify uh, the relationship between natural resource depletion and conflict. What we can do is, is use uh, 
a revolutionary new approach, which is called machine learning or artificial intelligence, to try to look at these big data sets and predict when, when we might see conflict in the future based on relationships the model looks at uh, and can see in past data. So we haven't uh, identified what are the exact drivers of conflict, but we are getting better at predicting conflict by using machine learning and big data and the ability to process these data. These are all things that we didn't have even 10 years ago, but which are now available to us to try to predict these types of difficult to predict events. So what kind of uh, place do you anticipate this being uh, particularly useful in just in the coming few years? Basically, a, a conflict is more likely w- when two things happen. One, when, when you have a, a big change in the resource. So, so, for example, a very big drought and where you have the inability to cope with this change. That basically points at countries that are vulnerable for different reasons. They, they might be too poor to be able to, to intervene. They, they might be politically too fragile to, to intervene. There might be social or demographic issues at play that prevent these countries uh, from intervening. So, so we're not just looking at a big drought or a big flood or, or that type of event, but we're, we're wanting to, to identify this big environmental change coupled with a, a very vulnerable country. Uh, so that would limit us to, to really the poorer countries around the world. Because while, while a very bad drought can, can cause a, a big headache in California, you're not likely to see a violent conflict between different users of water in California, because it's not a very fragile or vulnerable place. You've recently, as well as the Inner Niger Delta, one of the other areas that the initiative has looked at is uh, is Iraq, and that's been in the news recently because of yet another bout of of inner turmoil, and obviously it's it's quite a weak straight state in some areas, a very dry state, but it's it's fed by two particular rivers, and then there's lots of complications and implications upstream on the Tigris and Euphrates. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the example of Iraq? Iraq saw the most recent conflict begin two summers ago, so so the summer of 2018. And the main reasons people were were protesting in the streets violently was for for four main reasons. Uh, One was a lack of jobs. One was the perception of widespread corruption in the country with government officials lining their pockets with, with, with public funds. And then there was the issue of lack of government services. And what these people were zeroing in on was a lack of access to clean water and a lack of access to electricity. So there there have been lots of brownouts and blackouts and periods where where people can't turn on the lights, uh, uh, literally. You can see that these violent protests weren't just the result of water, that there are a lot of issues. But uh, on the water side, the, the problems, especially in southern Iraq, are huge. So, so one problem is that, that the Tigris and, and Euphrates rivers have less and less water flowing down into Iraq through the, the river channels uh, because of large-scale damming of the rivers in Turkey, but also because of uh, recurring droughts and, and uh, changing weather patterns. So, so th- this area of the world has become drier over the past few decades. 
and it's likely the result of, of human-induced climate change. So this reduced river flows is allowing salt water from the Persian Gulf to uh, flow up these rivers. And so cities in southern Iraq are seeing salt water in their freshwater sources of water supply. Of course, people can't drink salt water. And then the other problem with, with water quality in Iraq is that most water is just released untreated into rivers. Uh, so, so basically these rivers are becoming sewage. And so the, the result is people can't drink the water because it's too dirty, because it's salt water. And, and as a result, you've had uh, tens of thousands of people since the summer of 2018 hospitalized due to gastrointestinal problems, the result of drinking polluted water. You know, when people don't have access to a source of, of clean water, that's really something so basic that these people are really going out and protesting the, the lack of government intervention to uh, rectify this problem. One final question, Charlie, and that is uh, quite a broad one. Obviously, we know that uh, the climate is changing around the world. Certain areas are becoming more vulnerable. Uh, and of course, water use is changing. If you look at India and the problems that have been identified by the WRI aqueduct tool that shows just how much water stress there is in a place like India, a lot of that is driven by changing patterns of water use, you know, people moving to cities, more industry, etc. Um, so a tool like this, I, I, I assume, is going to become more and more and more valuable as, as these, this type of conflict becomes more prevalent. Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of the main drivers of water problems. It's twofold. On the demand side, you're seeing a growing population. It's going to hit 10 billion people by 2050. And these people are all wealthier, so each person is using more and more water. So, so the demand side pressures on water resources are huge and still growing. On the supply side, you mentioned the problem of climate change. And here, the basic problem is twofold. In some parts of the world, there's going to be less rainfall on an average annual basis. And then in, in most locations around the world, you're going to see uh, more extreme weather events, so, so more extreme droughts. So you're, you're seeing reduced water in some places punctuated by recurring uh, severe drought. And so that is a, a supply side pressure on water resources. And so as a result, you're going to see more and more conflict, including violent conflict uh, among competing users over uh, water resources in the future. And unfortunately, this tool is going to become more important as time passes. And that was Charlie Iceland on the ambitions of the Water, Peace and Security Partnership, picking apart that critical relationship between water and conflict. Charlie has also written a blog post explaining the work of WPS and the Iraq situation, which you can find along with much, much more on our website, wri.org. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thanks for listening.